Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne. Lord, we come to honor you and worship your great name, your holy name. We come in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, by whom we have been gathered here. And as he said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there he will also be. And we pray, Lord, for his presence, by his spirit, by his word. Lord, we thank you for your gospel of grace. And I just pray that you would grant me grace to speak to your people, not for my sake, not for the sake of anybody, but for the sake of your testimony. Lord, may your people come away saying, what a great God, what a great Savior Jesus is. I pray and thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time that you've given us. For there are many who died last night without knowing what we know. And we are only here, Lord, by your grace. And so, Lord, I pray that you open your word to your people and teach them so that they may see Christ high and lifted up. We pray and thank you in his precious name. Amen. Praise the Lord, brother. <laughs> Leviticus 21, verses 1 to 4 and 6. Leviticus 21, verses 1 to 4 and 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother. Also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has had no husband, for her he may defile himself. Otherwise he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people, to profane himself. Verse 6. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the food of their God, so they shall be holy. And the title of our sermon, our teaching, is going to be The Priest and His Dead Relatives and the Gospel. The Priest his dead relatives, and the gospel. We are going to be doing a lot of background teaching. I am mostly a teacher. I don't know if you call me a preacher, but I'm a, I'm a teacher. I like to connect things. I like to connect things. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was speaking to the Jews, I believe in John chapter 5, he said to them, you look to the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. And the scriptures that he was talking about were these very scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. These are the ones that testified of him. And so if we are reading the Old Testament scriptures and we don't see Jesus and his gospel then we are not reading the Old Testament scriptures right. They testify about the Son of God. They testify about his work of salvation in saving his people. So the Old Testament scriptures, all the stories that you read about, they are types and shadows. They 
tell us something about the person of Christ or the work of Christ. So we have institutions in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, we have the feasts, we have events, we have people who in some way represented Christ in some typical fashion. But of course, you are not going to be drawing a one-to-one because they were all sinners. And none of them really could give us a full picture of Christ because Christ is only complete in himself. He can't be complete in some sinner. That is why the Bible gives us all these stories, all these people as types and shadows of Jesus Christ and his work of salvation. So the sons of Aaron had the priesthood by God's appointment. You know, Israel had 12 sons, and of the 12 sons, the tribe of Levi was set aside by God's appointment, which is election. A lot of people will say, oh, I don't believe in election. The Bible does not teach election. No, the Bible teaches election in just about everything. (laughs) So the sons of Aaron had the priesthood by God's appointment. They alone could serve as priests, and they had very strict regulations placed upon them. The Lord God of Israel was among them, appearing before them by his Shekinah glory, if you still remember, in the tabernacle. And they had to be taught the way of holiness. They had to be taught how to approach God. They could not just approach him whichever way they wanted. And being ignorant was not going to be a good excuse or else someone was going to die. You could not say, oh Lord, oh I'm sorry, I did not know I was not supposed to go in the tabernacle. There was no excuse. You are a dead man before you even say that. And even now, Men still need to be taught on how to approach God. You just don't decide to come to God's presence. You just don't trip and fall into heaven like many people think. Like I had some pastor, I'm always referring to this example. I listened to some pastors, preachers, whatever you call them, at Whitney Houston's funeral. And one of the guys was saying, oh God, is so happy that Whitney Houston is now in heaven. He just could not wait for her to show up. And people are thinking, well, she was a celebrity. And because she's a celebrity, when she dies, she trips right into God's presence and have all the blessings of God. Heaven is not a natural extension of our life here on earth. You don't just go to heaven because you exist. And yet, that is the thinking that has a lot of the world, even some of the universalists who are proclaiming some universalist gospel to say, oh, God loves all men, and if all men die, they'll go to heaven. After all, Christ died to save all men. And we are going to see from our scripture, if that is true, we are going to be working a number of things and connecting them. So we can't just show up in the presence of God because God's house is heaven. Heaven is his abode. You need an invitation to come to heaven. 
even as I was preparing to come here to Pittsburgh, I had to ask him for permission. I said, brother, can I come to Pittsburgh this weekend? Because I don't want to be hanging out with these people just making noise over the New Year celebrations. So we need invitation. We need to know the way that God has instituted for us to approach him. We don't just touch the things of God or try to improve them without risking getting killed. And if you still know very well from the Old Testament, Uzzah tried to touch the ark of the Lord that was falling off the cart, and he was instantly killed. I'll read that for you from Second Samuel 6, 6 to 7. And when they came to Nacon's, Nacon or Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. So Uzzah had tried to steady the ark of God that was falling off the cart, and God killed him for that. The ark was coming from the Philistines and going back to Israel after the Philistines had captured the ark of the Lord in war, if you still remember, and it had killed a lot of people. Thousands of Philistines had been killed because of the ark. And if you remember also in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, tried to burn some strange incense before the Lord. And what happened to them? The Lord zapped them. He killed them right away. And these were Aaron's two sons. And Aaron is a man of God. He is doing all this work for God, and yet God does not hesitate to kill his sons, just like that. And Moses comes to Aaron and says to him, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all people, I must be glorified. And men do not know that. Anyone who has to approach God has to regard him as holy, and that's the problem that you and I have. God is holy, and you and I are not. We are not holy. Nedab and Abihu were killed not by God's love, but by his holiness. Because the gospel that we have in the church is all about God's love. It's all about God's love. And Christ came because of God's love and God's love alone. But we are not telling the whole story. The real issue is that God is holy and God is righteous. And if you have to approach a holy and righteous God, you have to follow the protocol. You have to approach him in a particular way. And so God had to teach the children of Israel. And also in that he was teaching us through the Levites on how we can approach him in peace. Every man and woman and child is going to approach God, but some are going to approach him in peace and others in ruin. And that's what God is teaching us by the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ invites those who are in Christ to come to him, but it also threatens All those who hate his gospel, the cross is saying, if you belong to me, come to me and I'll give you life. 
But if you don't belong to me, it will be done to you as what happened to Christ on the cross. So the cross of Jesus Christ is a guide book on how to approach a holy and righteous God because you and I, as I said, we are not holy and we are not righteous. And as Oprah would say, all roads lead to God. Yes, and we say, yes, all roads lead to God. But there's only one road that leads to God in peace. <laughs> and that is the road of Jesus Christ and his gospel and his righteousness. So we only approach God through the blood of Jesus Christ by the righteousness that is in Christ Jesus. So the law was given as a schoolmaster to that end of teaching us that we may know that it takes more than cuteness to approach God in peace. Because a lot of people think, oh, if someone is cute, if they die, then they have to be saved. No, it doesn't work like that. God is holy and cuteness is not the condition of salvation. Perfect obedience to the law is the condition of salvation. So the law was given to teach you and I that we are not holy and righteousness. Sorry, we are not holy and righteous. It was never to be the way by which we were to approach God in peace. The law was never for us to use to approach God by. It stipulated for us the terms of peace. Perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. But this is what the Lord did not do for you and me. It did not give us the power, the resources that we needed to meet that perfect obedience. The Lord does not provide that. The law only tells you that you have pneumonia, but it does not give you any antibiotics. You have pneumonia, you're going to die. That's all it does. You need more than the law to have life. You need more than the law to approach God in peace. And this is something also that the law does. The law tells you and I to handle a naked electrical line without providing the insulation. The law does not give insulation to the naked electrical line and the naked electrical line is God's holiness. Because remember the law, the law is holy. So the law of God is good. The commandment is righteous. But the problem is it does not give insulation. So if you and I have to approach God on the basis of something that is not insulated, guess what? We are in trouble. We are in serious trouble. And that is why all those who try to handle the Ark of the Covenant without the blood on the mercy seat were killed. It is the law that killed them. It is the holiness of God that killed them. And God was saying, unless you have the right blood, the blood that I've commanded, the blood that I will provide, there's no way that you can approach me in peace. You have to die. But the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ nailed the law. He nailed the law on the cross. 
He fulfilled the law. He died the curse of the law on behalf of his people. And he took the law away after having covered it with his own blood, Christ being the message. And yet we have many professing Christians who are climbing up the ladders and trying to take the law from the cross. They want to bring it down, but they are going to die. Yes, they may do it out of sincerity, but no, if you are sincere, you love Christ. You believe in the gospel. So the law has to be covered, my brothers and sisters. The law has to be covered or else there's no hope for you. The law has to be covered. If you are still seeing the law, if you are still seeing the law, then it means you don't have enough coverage. You should not be seeing the law. So it is the blood of Christ alone that covers the law. We are going somewhere. We are going somewhere. We are going to go into Leviticus sometime today, the Lord willing. The law needs to be covered. The law needs to be covered. It is the blood of Christ that covers the law. It is only the blood of Christ that covers the law. It is the blood of Christ alone that blinds God to your sin. It is the blood of Christ alone that blinds God to your sin. As Isaac was blinded to seeing Jacob, the hue catcher, who was hiding in safety and received the blessings of his father in the cover of the best clothes of his own elder brother, whom the father loved. You still remember that. Jacob, the hue catcher, the only way that he received the blessings from his father Isaac was when he was robbed with the best clothes of his brother. And Isaac, we are told, his sight was failing and he was not able to tell whether that was Jacob or Esau. Why? Because of the cloth that he was wearing. And that's exactly the teaching of the gospel. God is only blinded to your sin if you have the covering of Christ's clothes. His best clothes. And so those best clothes were a type of the righteousness of Christ. That covered him and that is all Jacob needed to have to meet with his father Isaac in peace. That's all he needed. He needed to just have those clothes on because you have a gospel that says, or you have to do this and that and this condition for God to accept you. But the teaching of the Bible is as long as you are covered in the righteousness of Christ, that is enough. That is enough. Okay, that is enough. But this is a problem that we have in the church. We have been attending and hearing a lot of teaching from the Fig Leaf Baptist Church. We have been listening to teaching from the Fig Leaf Baptist Church. And we have been taught that our own covering is enough for us. We have been taught to always be making covenants with God. You have people who are making covenants and say, Oh Lord, we are making a covenant with you. And they think by doing that, they are being faithful to God. They think they are pleasing to God. People are busy making a lot of covenants with God. 
and they think that they are being faithful to God by doing that. But the sad part of that is they are breaking those covenants as soon as they have made them. But there's a huge understanding that we have to have about how God works. God is only bound by one covenant. He is bound by the covenant of grace. The covenant that he made with his own son. This is the only covenant that he honors and nothing else. So we are wasting time when we are forming and making these covenants with God and thinking that we are pleasing and we are being such good Christians. No, 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 that's not true. God only honors the terms of the covenant, the eternal covenant that he made with his son on behalf of his people. And his son came and fulfilled all the terms of that covenant. The Lord God does not give salvation outside the covenant of grace. The old covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments cannot save you. They cannot save someone like you. Jesus is okay with the old covenant. He can do it. You need more than the old covenant to be saved. The old covenant has nothing for you because its mediator was not the son of God. The mediator of the old covenant was Moses. The old covenant was given by the agents of the angels, according to Apostle Paul. And the priesthood was the Levitical priesthood. And these were all inferior to Christ and were weak in themselves. And so they could never serve someone like you and I. We needed more than Moses. We needed more than angels. We needed more than the blood of bulls and goats to be saved. So in Hebrews 7, verse 18 to 19, the writer of Hebrews says, For on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, that is, uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. How many preachers have you had who say the law was weak and useless? Could you go into many of the churches today and tell them that the law is weak and useless. They would think you are a blasphemer. But it is because they are not speaking by the Spirit of Christ. Because the Spirit of Christ will give testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will teach us the proper function of the law. The law had a proper function. And it was to draw God's people to Christ, to teach them about Christ, but never to save them. But the old covenant, the law, has been removed. It has been annulled. It has been cancelled. That the new may come in. Did you hear what the writer of Hebrews says? He says there's an annulling or a cancelling of the old commandment, which is the old covenant which is the law, it has been removed. Why? That the new may come in because the law was weak 
and unprofitable to a sinner like you and I, it could never give us righteousness. And also the writer of Hebrews here says, the two, the old and the new, can't exist side by side. They can't coexist. So you are either under the law of Moses or you are under the law of Christ. That is very clear teaching. You don't mix covenants. You don't hybridize them. Yes, you may have a hybrid car and save some gas, but when it comes to salvation, God does not work like that. There's no hybridization of covenants because a covenant is marriage. When you find yourself in more than one covenant and you're trying to find salvation in both covenants, guess what? That's adultery. And God does not tolerate that. And Jesus taught this when he talked about the new wine in new wine skins. He was saying you can't put new wine in old wine skins because the old wine skins have already stretched out. And if you put new wine in, it's going to expand and you're going to blow up everything and lose everything. That's salvation. He's saying there's no salvation for you if you mix the old and the new. So it is the new covenant that is in the blood of Christ that makes things perfect, which means it actually saves sinners. It perfects them. That's good news. That's good news. So the old covenant, the law, was weak and useless because of the weakness of your flesh, because of sin. So it could never help you. But the new covenant brings a better hope. And I don't know about you. I need a better hope. I have too many things that are failing right now. My, my back is not feeling good. I'm starting to feel a little bit of my aging. And I, I'm looking at my 401k and I realize that I may have to work until I am 85. I need a better hope. I need an imperishable hope because if my salvation is dependent on my running, on my planning, on my diligence, there's no hope for me. There's no hope for you either. I need a covenant, and I'm sure you too need a covenant that actually saves you because you need saving. You need saving. And this covenant of grace brings a better hope by which we draw near to God. It brings a better hope by which you and I who are sinners can draw near to God in confidence that we don't get electrocuted. Remember, all men have to draw near to God. All men have an appointment with God. Every man has to meet with God. And God says, no one shall come to me empty-handed. You have to bring something to God. So what are you going to bring? What do you have? Leftovers. What are you going to bring to God? You have an appointment tonight, next week, next year, 20 years from now, but the appointment is there. What are you going to bring? You have nothing to bring unless you bring that which God has given you to bring to him, the righteousness of Christ Jesus. The old covenant could not help you to draw near to God. That's the issue. Your issue is you have to draw near to God. And as you are drawing near to God, there is the risk of you bringing the wrong sacrifice. 
and being killed on the spot. And they say in the Holy of Holies, there was no chair. And from my reading, it's not in the Bible, but from my reading, they say that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, they had to put a bell on him and they had to tie him so that if God killed him because he made a wrong move, they could not go in there themselves so they could pull him out. What's the issue? It's approach. You're approaching a holy and righteous God and he has to be approached in a very specific way, the way that he has told us to approach him. But the gospel of grace brings confidence. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. The gospel of grace brings confidence. Why? Because our sin does not condemn us. Our sin has been removed in Christ. The gospel of grace gives us a mediator between us and God. The mediator whom God loves. The mediator who God hears. Jesus in John 11, when he was praying, he was talking to Martha. He said to Martha, Father, I know you always hear me. Can you say that? Always. Can you say that? Father, I know you always hear me. And this one who the Father always hears is our mediator. Oh, that's good news. It may not be good news for you, but it's good news for me. I need someone that God hears. And Christ Jesus is the one whom God hears. And he hears us because of Christ. And this only happens because of the new covenant. Don't play with the new covenant. You have no hope whatsoever. We can balance the budget here. We can get everything happening right in this country. But as long as we are not having the righteousness of Christ, I'm telling you, you have a hopeless eternity. But not all will be able to draw near to God in this manner and with this confidence and with this perfection. The gospel that we preach is a gospel that first and foremost has to prepare you to die. If the gospel and the Jesus that you have does not prepare you to die, then you have no gospel. You have to be prepared to die before you can live. Now that we know what Christ has accomplished for us, we have the confidence to approach God on that day that he calls us in peace. I just had a Zimbabwean family. They were driving back from Harare, the capital city of, of Zimbabwe, to go back to South Africa. I think they are based in South Africa. And the whole family died in an accident. There were six of them, I believe, and four of them died on the spot. And the other two were in critical care. So we don't know where things are going to go. Eternity has already arrived for the other four. And what did they have? We don't get saved because of the way that we died. <laughs> we only get saved when we possess the righteousness of Christ. And men are not hearing this enough. Not all men will be able to draw near to God in peace. Not all men will be able to draw near to God with the confidence that we have because of the perfection that we have in Christ Jesus. There is more to salvation than just being saved from sin, death, and the devil, and condemnation. And let's tell the truth. 
God is not desperate for sinners to come to heaven. God is not looking for people that will come and be buddies with him in heaven. He is the sovereign one who has existed from eternity to eternity by himself. God never gets bored. So there is more to salvation than just salvation as an expression of God's love. Can we learn about the love of God from the work of Christ? Yes, of course. The love of God is a motivation in the work that Jesus did for his people. But there's more to salvation than John 3.16. There's Romans 9. There's Ephesians 1. That gives us more understanding of what it is that God is doing in the work of salvation. God is in the glory business. And love alone is not the motivation for our salvation. It is his glory that drives everything. People need to know how God saves sinners. But this knowledge, brothers and sisters, is not given to all. If it had been given to all right now, we should be having a thousand people listening. But look at what God has done. It's a cold New Year's Day and we are here Instead of doing a lot of things, a lot of foolishness, God has gathered us here that we may hear something about how he saves people. So God has not taught this to everybody and does not tell this to everybody. And this should magnify grace in your sight because God did not need you. God did not need me. And yet out of his grace, He came and he chose you and put you in Christ and gave you the righteousness of Christ. That's wonderful. So the grace of God is not a universal grace. It's free grace. It's an electing grace. It is an election according to grace. It is a discriminating grace, which means not everyone is given the grace of God. And this is what should make grace so wonderful to your eyes and mine. Christmas gifts are not amazing. The shoes and all this other stuff that we have here on earth is not amazing. Grace is amazing when we realize that God was not under obligation to save you. That he was within his rights to just leave you in your sin and just continue with his business. And God is happy, he's okay with you in heaven or in hell. It doesn't matter. And yet he chose you and he determined to bring you in Christ and to give you all the inheritance, all the blessings to sit us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful thing to be in. So having said that, I need to connect us to where I'm want to talk about the text that we just read. We need to answer the question that for whom did Christ accomplish the work of salvation? Because we know that Christ actually accomplished the work of salvation. We hear people say, saying Jesus died to save all men. But did Jesus die to save all men? Do the scriptures actually say Jesus died to save all men, and the only thing that is getting in between all men and God 
is them exercising their will. We are being told that God loves to save all men, but if you don't exercise your will, then you don't get saved. And if you exercise your will, then you get saved. So what that does is it brings salvation to your will. It conditions salvation on your own doing. It brings salvation and makes it meritorious on those who have the sense and who have the diligence to exercise their will. But is that the teaching of the scriptures? And that takes us to our text in Leviticus 21. After the children of Israel had left Egypt, God appointed a priesthood by which he would teach them the way to approach him. He had to teach them the way of holiness and the way of mediation. Since they were serving a holy God, it was important that they treated the work of their ministry with holiness. And so he gave them regulations beyond the Ten Commandments. The regulations touched everything that involved the priests inside and outside the tabernacle. The regulations touched everything that the priests did, whether in the tabernacle or outside the tabernacle. It touched the food, the garments, the washings, family relations, marriage. Remember the work of the priest. The priest was appointed by God to offer gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And this work depicted or typified for us the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in our own salvation. And in this, our text, we are given very peculiar instructions. The instruction that was given to Moses or Aaron was that none of the priests could defile himself for a dead person among his people. Here Leviticus 21 verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people. The priest could not defile himself for the dead among his people, but other people who were not priests, other regular ordinary people, could be defiled for the dead among them. They could touch a corpse and be made clean after seven days after the work of purification had been performed on them. But the priests were excluded from this provision. I want you to go to Numbers 19. Numbers 19 verses 11 to 20. Numbers 19, 11 to 20 says, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day, and on the seventh day then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day, and on the seventh day he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanliness is still on him. This is the law 
when a man dies in a tent, all who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days, and every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer bent for purification from sin and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. Verse 18, a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent on all the vessels, on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day, and on the seventh day, and on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water, and at evening he shall be clean. Verse 20, But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So a provision was made for the ordinary person to touch any dead person among them and be clean after seven days after they had been washed by the water of purification. However, For the priesthood, the restrictions were very tight. They could not just touch any dead person. They could not be defiled for them. Here are the exceptions. Let's go back to Leviticus 21, verse 1 again. None shall defile himself for the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has had no husband for her, he may defile himself. So the text says, the priest could be defiled not by a dead person, but for a dead person. Let me repeat that again, just in case you didn't catch it. The text says, the priest could be defiled not by a dead person, but for a dead person. That is interesting language. See the difference between by and for. For means on behalf of someone, in the place of someone, for the benefit of someone. And so the priest was not made unclean physically or intrinsically, but only in a ceremonial way and in place of their dead relative. They were not made unclean. They were not made a sinner by touching a dead person. They were reckoned as unclean by touching them. Hear me. We are starting to work the gospel. They were not defiled by the dead person necessarily, but they were defiled for the benefit Of that dead person. What benefit does a dead person have if they are dead? Why do they need a priest to be defiled for them? They are already dead. That is strange to me. A dead person 
is a dead person. And why the difference between the common dead and the dead who were close relatives to the priests? How does one dead person defile more than the other? It should not be unless one had Ebola and another had died from dehydration or from a heart attack. In that case, I would not want to touch a person who died from Ebola or someone who had some kind of infectious disease. But here, the issue is not about spreading infection. The restrictions, pay attention, were not placed because of the danger or health risk that was posed by the dead person. This had nothing to do with hygiene. Rather, the distinctions were based on family relations. Remember the function of the priest. We're going to keep driving this. The priests were appointed to make atonement on behalf of the people. And they could not make atonement in this context unless they were defiled by the very same thing that was on the person who needed atonement. (laughs) And so by touching the dead person, they became contaminated by the uncleanliness of the one who was dead. They automatically assumed the uncleanliness of that person by just touching. So touching the dead person is what transferred the defilement that was on them to the priests. And once the priest had touched the unclean person, guess what? They automatically needed atonement. Gotta hear me. What is that a picture of? What is that a picture of? This is imputation of defilement. This is imputation of sin. Sin, as we know from the day of atonement, on the day of atonement, the high priest confessed the sins of all the children of Israel on the scapegoat. He just had his hands and he confessed and all the sins were transferred. And we are told in this text that the priests, when they touched the dead person, they were automatically defiled and atonement had to be made. So touching here is a picture of the transfer of our sin to our own high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. But see the instructions again. The priests could only be defiled for a very specific people. They could only be defiled by relatives who were nearest to them. Hear me. His mother, his son, his daughter, and his brother, and his virgin sister, and nobody else. What is that saying? It is saying the priest could only make atonement for the defilement caused by those who were closest to him by blood. We are working the text. It's going to come. That is election. That is union language. The priest was already in union with his father by blood. Union with his mother. Union with his siblings. Union with his sister. And could only defiled 
for them. See the status of the relatives for whom the priest was defiled. They were not alive. They were dead relatives. <laughs> and, and what do the scriptures say of all men because of sin? Ephesians chapter 2. Is it, who has Ephesians chapter 2 in their house? Do you have that? Did I see it last night? And, and brother Brian has Ephesians chapter 2 on his bag. <laughs> the relatives of the priests were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, they are dead and that is why they need atonement. But was this about some good hygiene? This does not make sense if we are to understand and if we understand the theology and teaching of salvation. This has nothing to do with hygiene. One who is dead is not able to do anything to clean themselves. They are not able to do anything to save themselves. They lack the ability to move their hand. They lack the ability to go into the shower. They can't clean themselves. They are dead. They are a stinker and they can't wash themselves clean. And that is the condition of all sinful men. They are dead in trespasses and sins and are not able to do anything to help themselves. And the only way such a dead person can be clean is if their priest who is alive gets defiled for them, takes their defilement on himself. The priest is alive. You and I are dead. And unless our brother, the priest who is related to us by blood, takes it on himself, the obligation to watch us clean, then we remain dead in trespasses and sins. Unless our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who also happens to be our brother. Isn't that what the Bible says? Jesus Christ is our brother. He's our older brother. So this is family language. Christ is the nearest to us by blood. And not only that, Jesus Christ is not just our brother, he is also a priest in the family. He is our priest in the family. If we don't have a priest in the family, we cannot be atoned for. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is good stuff. Second Corinthians 5.21. I think everybody knows this by heart. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the high priest or the priest was defiled on behalf of his family. He took their defilement on him that they may become the righteousness of God in him. What is that teaching? It is teaching particular redemption. It is teaching salvation. It is teaching limited atonement. Who did Christ die for? Who did Christ make an atonement for on the cross? What did the work of Christ on the cross 
accomplish. What did he accomplish? When Christ went on the cross and he resurrected, what was in his mind as having been accomplished? What did he accomplish? He accomplished the atonement of those who were close to him by blood. Let's keep working. The priest was very clearly instructed who it is who could benefit from his act of being defiled. He could not be defiled for everyone who was dead in the camp of Israel. But his family, those closest to him by blood. And the Lord Jesus Christ had the same instruction. He could only be defiled for those members of his family. He could only be defiled by the dead who belonged to him, the elect, the church, those that the father gave to him. And so he would come and say in John 10, verse 14 and 15, you know this verse very well. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the world. Oh, well, my Bible says for the world. And I lay down my life for the ship. For the ship. Let's take that statement in the context of Leviticus 21. The Lord says, he is the good shepherd, which means he does not lose any of his ship. That is security of salvation based not on the ship, but on the performance of the shepherd. The security of our salvation is not predicated on our running. It's not predicated on our good performance. It's the good shepherd who makes sure he doesn't lose any of those that the father gave to him. And Jesus cannot use the title good shepherd if he loses just one of them. He becomes a hireling. But that's not the Jesus that we have. <laughs> Jesus says he knows his ship. The priest in the Old Testament was only defiled by the dead of those whom he knew. His family and nobody else. Hear me. And Jesus comes and says, he lays his life down for those that he knows. Also, the sheep, before they died, they knew their shepherd because they belonged to the same family. The priest and his family were already in union before any of the family members had died. We were already in Christ before the foundation of the world by God's election. We were already in Christ before Adam fell. But he came to redeem his own. He came to redeem his own. He came to redeem very specific sheep. Jesus came for a very particular people, particular relatives for whom he was defiled. And many who kick and scream and say, but Jesus died for all. Yes, Jesus died for all his relatives. <laughs> 
He died for all his relatives, but not for all who were dead in trespasses and sins. The priests could not be defiled for everyone who was dead among them. So Jesus Christ accomplished a particular redemption. Jesus Christ paid for all the sins of all those that the Father gave to him. There's nothing else that needs to be paid. He said, it's finished. And I'm sure Jesus knows how to spell finish. And I'm sure he knows what to finish means. It means it was finished. It was complete. It was perfected. Listen to this. He was defiled for his relatives. The ones that he says, I know my sheep. The priest in the Old Testament only was defiled for those whom he knew. Those that were closest to him and could not be defiled for everybody. And some people will say, but why? Because you see, when we look at the work of Christ, Christ was not want in power to save the whole world if he wanted to. Christ was not want in righteousness to give righteousness to everybody. He is God. He does not run out of anything. But why then did Jesus not save everybody? Because he could have saved everybody if he wanted. He could have. The reason is, it pleased the Lord to save only a certain number. That's a statement of God's sovereignty. It was good in God's sight to save only a particular people. And that statement is not welcome in the majority of the church. But that's the only truth you have to deal with. He saved all those that were chosen in him to be near to him as his close relatives before the foundation of the world. So the reason why the high priest was only limited to being defiled for his close relatives was only because of God's sovereign will. And to that God says, Romans 9. Uh, I need you all to go to Romans 9. Romans 9, 18 to 24. It's a dreaded verse. I mean, the dreaded chapter of the Bible. And some people have actually taken to tearing their pages out of the Bible. Romans 9 and Ephesians chapter 1. But if they have those missing pages, guess what? It means they know it's there. It means they know God teaches it. Romans 9, 18 to 24 says, I'll make some commentary as I am going through. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills. And whom he wills, he hardens. You say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Why does God still find fault in those that he did not choose to save? If salvation is up to God 100%, why does he still find fault in those that he has chosen not to save? After all, his will is irresistible. That's the argument. And when someone asks that question, it tells you that God has given them understanding of God's sovereignty. They have come to, they've come face to face to dealing with who God is. 
they are starting to see grace for what grace is. But hear the response. God defends his sovereign right to do whatever is good in his own sight. And he says in verse 20, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? So this is God's argument. You have no right to stand on your hind legs and question my ways. That's his argument. No creature has a right to question God about his work and his will. He is God and he does whatever he wants and that is what it means to be God. The moment that God has to be dancing to the tune of any of his creatures, he ceases to be the sovereign one. And God argues for his sovereign rights and says, listen, I have my own bill of rights too. And does not the porter have power over the clay from the same lamp to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? God says, I am the porter and I have the freedom, just like any porter, to shape and dispose everything as I see fit. I make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor, according to my will. And no man has the right to come and question that. Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, enjoyed with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, verse 23 and 24, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so God says, the reason why some are saved and others are not is not found in those who are saved or those who are not saved. The saved did not exercise their free will. The will of man is not free to choose salvation and to determine those things which God alone determines. The saved ones were not the smart ones or the more diligent ones. And yet that is the teaching in most of the church world. They say, oh, salvation depends on you exercising your will. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Salvation is only found in God's will and purpose in Christ that he may make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, you and I, whom he has called by his gospel to make his grace glorious in your face and mine and to demonstrate his power and his justice to make it known to the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And that is a hard saying. I don't want to minimize this teaching. This is one of the hardest places of the Bible to teach. But it makes grace amazing if you are one of those who are the vessels of honor. It makes it easier for you to fall on your knees and worship a God like that. A God that you can choose, a God who needs you is not God. Why do you pray 
I'm not going to pray to a God who needs me. But a God who doesn't need me, I can go on my knees and beg him and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. So sovereign grace is amazing because there's nothing that you and I could ever do, not even tears. Remember Rock of Ages. Tears could forever flow and there's nothing that you can ever do to get yourself into the favor of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. And that is why for those who are objecting to this teaching, God says to them in Psalm 2.12, Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Bow down to the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So to kiss the son is to believe in the gospel of God's grace. That's kissing the son. That's not kissing the Pope. That's not going to Rome and kissing those statues of Apostle Peter. But this is where we are. I can't even believe that we are almost done. The Lord saved you because God had from eternity chosen you to be saved in Christ. There was no virtue or advantage that the relatives of the priests had over the other dead people. They were all dead. All were dead and defiling. And what do the scriptures say? As far as our own difference, who makes you to differ? Is it not God who makes us to differ? If you have faith, is it not God who gave faith? Didn't apostle, sorry, John the Baptist says, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from above. And apostle Paul says, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lamp one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? We all come from the same clay, fallen people. There's no one who was doing well. There was no one who was looking for God. And yet God, by his amazing and marvelous grace, came and said, Oh, by the way, Mike, you didn't know you belonged to me. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful news. It's beautiful news. If Obama came and said, oh, Mike, I didn't know you were my brother. Give me a hug. <laughs> You'd be so happy. You'd be happy for a week. <laughs> Maybe, a day. Maybe a day. But this is my point. My point is, you have Obama. He's someone who is in high office. He is someone who doesn't really care about you. And if you were to come and say, oh, I'm coming to your house today. Oh, what a glorious thing for you. But listen. The son of God who holds all things by the word of his power. has condescended himself to say, oh, by the way, Mike, you belong to me. That's beautiful. You could never stop thanking a God like that. So you and I were chosen and were made vessels of honor through the covenant of grace. We're going back to the covenant again. This covenant of grace was made for the sake of those that the Father gave to Christ. It is for these that Jesus came and fulfilled on their behalf all the requirements of our salvation as our surety, as one who took all the legal responsibilities and liabilities of performing every jot and tittle 
that God required of you that he may present you before him holy and blameless. I am holy and blameless. I don't care what people say. I am holy and blameless. I have the righteousness of Christ. On account of Christ, you and I know how to approach God in peace. On account of Christ, you and I have been given access to God and it's wonderful. And Apostle Paul would then say in Romans 8, 1 to 4, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And as the beautiful hymn says, I don't know if you know this hymn, but it's a beautiful hymn, free from the law or happy condition. Jesus has bled and this remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ has redeemed us once for all. Once for all, all sinner receive it. Once for all, all doubter believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. There on the cross, your burden upbearing. Thorns on his brow, your savior is wearing never again your sin need appall. You have been pardoned once for all. Now we are free. There's no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me, all hear his sweet call. Come and he saves us once for all. Children of God, all glorious calling, surely his grace will keep us from falling. Passing from death to life at his call. Blessed salvation once for all. And that, my friends, is the mystery of the priest being defiled for his nearest relatives and nobody else. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again to worship you and thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ who is the gospel, who has given us a salvation that cannot be taken away, a salvation that cannot be improved. He has given us a life that is hid in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for we did not even know that we needed Christ. And had it not been of grace that sought us, would still be in the world, just waiting to die punched our first-class tickets to go to hell. And yet, Lord, by your grace, you drew us to yourself. You drew us near and put us in Christ. And Christ was defiled for his relatives who were nearest to him. And Lord, we thank you for all the relatives of Christ who are gathered here this afternoon, these whom you have called by your gospel. Lord, I pray that you may 
use one or few of the words that you've given me to increase them in their knowledge of you, to encourage them so that they may only have hope in what Christ has accomplished. Lord, we pray and we thank you for all those who could not make it this afternoon. May you, by your sovereignty, give them opportunity to listen to this message or any other such message where this message of Christ is carried. We pray and we thank you for your people here, Lord. And as we have been praying in the past few hours, we pray that you would increase the testimony of Christ in your people. We pray that you would increase the laborers on the fields, that they may bring this teaching to all those who are being saved, whom Christ died for. We pray and we thank you for all those who have all kinds of infirmities in here. Lord, they need you, and I pray that your grace will be sufficient for them, for your power is made strong in weakness. So, Lord, we thank you, and may you hear us because of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you always hear. We pray and thank you in his precious name. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters. I hope you had something.